Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, uh, which Matt just read for us. Um, if you do not own a Bible, then please take one of those black Bibles that is next to you as a gift from Mission Church to you. I would encourage you to follow along with me. It's always a good thing to do when you're hearing somebody talk from the Bibles, just so you know that they're not making it up. All right, and so we encourage you to follow along uh, with us here this morning. Um, I don't say this enough, but I love you. Um, I love being a member of this church, and I love being one of its elders. And so I just count it a privilege to be here today, to be united in prayer and in fellowship and in song uh, with my brothers and sisters as our heartbeat here as mission is to worship Jesus, to make disciples, and to see multiplication uh, take place. I would estimate uh, today uh, that in the most common quote about God outside of the Bible is by this pastor and author from the mid-20th century. Century. His name is A.W. Tozer. And Tozer wrote a ton of books and is just, in many ways, should be imitated in some other ways, especially in regards to his home life. I would encourage you not to imitate him. Um, but a lot of his heartbeat and his passion uh, was all about who is God and the importance for us as a people to turn back to God. I would say that the most common quote, again, outside of the scripture in regards to God actually comes from this man named A.W. Tozer. And he says this in the first line of his book, Knowledge of the Holy. I think I've got his picture up here so that you can see that. It says this. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. See, worship, both daily and during our Sunday morning gatherings, are all reflective either, either a high view of God, that God is really big, or a low view of God. See, there are many people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, followers of this God, that are looking at God through a microscope. A microscope is you take this small little item like me when I was a kid. Um, my sister can tell you I was given at Christmas a small little microscope. It was red. It came with like fruit fly slides. My nephew Maddox would probably love that. And you look at something small through this lens in hopes of making something small big. This is an improper way of looking at God. See, God is, we should be looking at him like through a telescope. That God is this ginormous being, that he is a presence, that he is a he, that he is not just, just this spirit, but that there is a person. And that we want to look at him through the Bible, not to see something small, magnified, but to see something really big put into perspective that you and I can taste, look, see upon. The most revealing thing about you and I as a person is your view of God. See, your true beliefs, your, your actions will always follow your true beliefs. You ever come across somebody who says, well, I don't believe in this, and then I do that, right? I hear this a lot of times with people who are trying to make themselves, and, and, and it, it's a delicate situation. I understand it, and there are lots of stories behind this, but I've come across lots of folks who have said things like, man, I don't believe in divorce. Then they go to get in a divorce for unbiblical reasons. 
okay? And the thing is, your true beliefs will always come out in your actions. It is the natural development. Jesus speaks of this, uh, that he talks about different fruit trees will always produce that type of fruit. An apple tree will always produce an apple, an orange, always an orange. You can't get good fruit from a bad tree, okay? Your actions will always follow what you truly believe. See, today we're beginning a 12-week sermon series through the first of the year, And I'll be honest with you, this may be the most important sermon series in the life of Mission Church that we have done up to date. Uh, Today's sermon, by nature, is going to be very introductory. I would encourage you over the course of the next 12 weeks not to listen to it again because I'm beautiful and I'm great at doing this and that you love me and that you want to just make me feel good by clicking on our website and listening to it. But I would encourage you to, to listen to this over and over again as it is constantly setting the course and culture of where we are as Mission Church. Confessionally, I, I would say that I felt more weight in preparation for this series and particularly this sermon than I've probably ever felt in 15 years of full-time pastoring of people. Why? Because I believe this, if we get wrong God, if we get God wrong from our perspective, it doesn't change who God is, but from our perspective, if we get God wrong, then all is wrong. Meaning this, if we do not seek and savior God of the scripture, then we create a deceiving imitation that leads us astray and also those around us. It's called counterfeit Christianity, and I'm concerned that it is the largest false religion and a majority religion in this very culture within the United States. See, I know that many of us struggle to even use the term God anymore, don't we? Because we live in a pluralistic society, God is commonplace. God has become a generic name for many gods. Uh, Speaking of God will usually not cause you much persecution. See, actors, they stand up after winning an Oscar award for being in a dirty movie. They get awarded for that. And what do they do? Thank God for this. After the Super Bowl, and definitely if the Bears ever win the Super Bowl, I will be thanking God we finally did it. Right? Even I, I love uh, combat sports, and many times after I watch some dude beat up another dude, they will get to the mic and say, I just want to thank God for allowing me to beat up this guy. I can do all things in Christ who giveth me strengtheth, right? Which is a terrible context of that passage. Even if you were to pull out a piece of money right now, what does it say on it? In God we trust. But do we? Do you believe in God? See, if you were to ask a majority of Christians, what are they going to say? Or not a majority of Christians, but a, a majority of Americans, if you were to go to them and say, do you believe in God? Guess what they're going to tell you? Yes. The actual statistic is nine out of 10 percent, according to a Gallup poll in 2016, these are new numbers, nine out of 10 people inside of the American Will, inside of America will tell you that they believe 
in God. See, the sinful nature, sin, Satan, and death, in most cases is not convincing people that God doesn't exist, but that God isn't as important as he really should be, and that God doesn't really mean what he says. A great example of this is Satan inside the Garden of Eden, using God's words against himself, surely you won't die. See, this is not just a question on, is God's word true? But the question, if God's word is true, is also a direct attack against God's very character, against his very nature. See, we believe that sin is, is just a mistake that you and I make because we are imperfect people. Nobody's perfect. So that enables us to get a license to sin. But however, did you know that every time that you and I participate in sin, it is not only an imperfection, but it is also a declaring of war against God's very character. So is the God that we are speaking of. Therein lies the confusion. And therein lies our aim over the next 12 weeks to look biblically and to biblically explore the character and nature of God. Though we cannot do this completely. I don't want you to think at the end of 12 weeks, oh yeah, I got that. I know everything there is to know about God. That is simply not true. For those of us whom God has saved and will save, God is going to spend all of eternity revealing to the church who he is. And yet, for the sake of intimacy, calls you and I to seek him and to know him. Even now. Even now. This is the center of the story of scripture. This is the desire of every true, authentic believer this is the, should be the desire of every faithful church to know God, the God of the Scripture, and to make that God known. This is the pursuit of our eternal life. So we asked this morning, first off, who is God? Well, in Genesis 1-1, we notice that the first statement that is given there is that in the beginning, God. It doesn't say that in the beginning, Matt or Adam or Eric. It doesn't say those things. It says that in the beginning, presuming that God has always been, in the beginning, God. This is the God that we're speaking of. This God is not spoken of um, faithfully in an anointed way in any other book except for that which is in front of you right now that we call the Holy Bible. There's this statement that helps us to be able to memorize this. I wrote it inside of your weekly this week. It's on top of the notes page. It's going to be there for the next 12 weeks to help us make sure that when we're speaking of God, that we know exactly who we mean. In the New City Catechism, which is an updated version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says this, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal. He's infinite and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his 
will. So when we at Mission Church use the terminology, we are not speaking of Allah, we are not speaking of Buddha, we are not speaking of any other God that has been historical and ancient or anyone that we have created in our modern times. We are speaking of Yahweh. We are speaking of the great I Am, the God of all gods, the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and David and Moses and Samson and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Jesus. This is the God that we will speak of. So when the word God comes forth from our lips, this is exactly what we mean. Now, the word gospel simply means if you've grown up in church or if you've been to Sunday school at any point in time or maybe you've just had somebody share with you, the, the gospel literally means the good news. But that begs the question, what is the ultimate good of this news? What is the ultimate good? There are a lot of secondary goods of the gospel. But what is the primary good of the gospel? Well, let's let the Bible answer this. I would say in condensed form, this is the ultimate good, and we see this directly from the scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, what? Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. John Piper condenses that, author and pastor John Piper, he says this, the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. So when we say that God is the gospel, this is what we're speaking of. That the ultimate end, the penultimate, the, not just the means by which, but the ultimate thing that we are after inside the gospel, though there are, again, many gifts that we will speak of, the ultimate end desire of us to want to know this good news, at the very tail end of it, is God himself. That is what we're after. That, that is he who we are pursuing. You and I are after that. That is what the gospel presents first and foremost is that Jesus came in willing obedience, perfect obedience to satisfy God's wrath in hopes of doing what? In bringing us back to God. So the next 12 weeks, this will be our aim that we as the people of Mission Church, that we must return to seeking and savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel. This is why every week when Pastor Justin gets up here and tells you what our worship, what our mission is, first and foremost, multiplying is great. Disciple making is obedient. But all of that stems from the worship of God, the worship of Jesus. All those things are secondary. Those are the fruit of a passionate people who are dedicated to this God. So our aim over 12 weeks is that we must get back to seeking, savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel. If you are turned with me to the book of Isaiah, it lays this out before us. 
See, the book of Isaiah was, Isaiah was a prophet. Now, don't let that freak you out if you've grown up in a church similar than I grew up. Anytime when someone said there was a prophet or prophetess, that means they were about to get their sweaty hands all over your face and say some mystical statement that you are not going to understand, but because you're at church, you're going to nod your head or, as my sister used to do, just fall on the floor and then look around to see if anybody else is looking at her. All right? You're going to go with it. Everybody's a prophet and prophetess, this, this, all right? Basically speaking, sometimes prophets do speak of the future, okay? But I want you to know, if somebody comes to you and says they're a prophet, and they tell you something's going to happen, and it doesn't happen, according to the Bible, we can take them out and stone them to death. Because to speak for God and not, not to happen is punishable by death, all right? Now, let's, let's don't do that. <laughs> let's be gracious, but let's make sure we have a conversation. You need to know the seriousness of that. Many times the word prophet does, does not mean a foretelling of the future as much as it means a messenger of God. I am being prophetic right in this moment. I am preaching, proclaiming a message from God. This is prophetic in its very nature and calling upon the pastor's life. The book of Isaiah is a vision. It's a vision, it's a message from God to his people, the Jewish people on how to return to being God-centered, as a return of how do we seek and savior God as the ultimate good of the gospel. See, there's a God-centered way of seeing and living. It offers everyone a true alternative to the false appearances of the world. The central theme inside the book of Isaiah is God. We learn that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 11, he does all things for his own sake. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God in a few weeks. Over and over, we see in the book of Isaiah, God's character being revealed to his people. So he says, okay, culture is going this way. The world is going this way. You're being tempted, bent toward. You want to do what the world is doing, but I want to show you, my people, that there is a true and better way to live, and that is by seeing, seeking, savoring pursuing, being preoccupied with my nature and character for the sake of intimacy. So we see inside of the book of Isaiah, and uh, I've got a big long slide here. Um, I won't be able to read all of these to you, but we can see throughout the book of Isaiah that God over and over again is revealing his character, that he's the central theme that's in Isaiah chapter 45. He's the high and lifted up one, um, and, and he is near to us though. So he's high and lifted up, yet he is near to us in that dichotomy. In chapter 57, his wrath is fierce. He atones for sins. Um, he is moving history toward the blessing of his people in Isaiah 43. And the exclusive worship is all due toward him. This is in Isaiah chapter 2. And so we can see over and over again in this book, it is not ultimately about Isaiah. It is not ultimately about God's people. The book of Isaiah is ultimately about God. And this is true of every book inside of Scripture. So, then why did God's people need to refocus why did they need to refocus? It seems plain. This is what the world is doing. This is what God is calling us to do. And yet the book of Isaiah is about calling God's people to once again seek and savor God above seeking and saving, uh, savoring the things of this world. Didn't the Jews have a rich, long history in, of intimacy with God? 
Weren't they the very ones that he revealed his character to? Yes. But they had wandered. They had drifted. They began to look more like the world than more like the God whom they claimed to serve and to worship. See, they continued to participate in religious activity. But God and his word was often the furthest from their worship. God's people were deceived and distracted. They had forsaken God and, the wor- and their worship was hollow. They were influenced by the world and these other religions and it distorted their view of God and his mission. The prophet Isaiah reveals this to the people in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. So we see this separation, though they're continuing to go through religious activity. All right? They're going to Sabbath school. All right? They got Jewish Awana, where you can learn Old Testament Bible verses and get Awana bucks and go buy, like, I don't know, honey or something cool, yarmulkes for the kids, something. All right? So all this religious activity is still going on. And yet, what does God say about them? They are estranged children. They have forsaken God, though their lives are consumed with this religiosity. See, after years of adultery, God sends a prophet Isaiah. In an act of discipline, God tells the people through Isaiah that he will be, uh, that the people will be taken into captivity, that they'll be exiled from the promised land. And in this act of discipline, God is going to bring forth from those people a remnant, the truly faithful, the truly repentant. See, he's going to use something called enslavement. He's going to use an exile to pull weeds and to show who really is God's people. See, the people were religious, but their hearts were cold toward God. They simply went through the motions while their hearts were far from God. But God is going to use an exile to purge his people of false converts, to recenter them on the remnant, this remnant on God and his mission. In Isaiah chapter 40, which we read earlier, there's a transition literally in the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah proclaims to the people to turn from unfaithfulness to faithfulness by clinging to God and him alone. So he warns them, hey, you're about to be in captivity. Your your people, my people, they're about to be enslaved once again. You're going to be removed from the promised land, but I want you to know this is serious. People are going to die, all of these sorts of things. Pain is coming, suffering is coming, but this is not beyond my will. I am causing this, I am willing this to show through the refining fire who is really in me, who is really seeking me, who is passionate about me, 
and who will go by the wayside. There in Isaiah, that's in front of you, chapter 40, verse 9 through 11, again, he tells them, after telling them all of this stuff that's going about to happen to them, and again, God doesn't stop the exile from taking place. He's saying, in the midst of the exile, do this. Go up on the high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense a recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Before being captured, he tells them, you will not always be in exile. The promised land is coming for the remnant, for the true believer. He tells them that from that remnant, one day there is going to be, from the line of David, there will become an ultimate king and he will redeem these people. He tells them of a glorious future. And he encouraged them to live faithfully in their troubling times. The good news is God is gracious and that he eventually will save them from the overwhelming darkness. It looks bleak, but reckoning is coming. God was going to use judgment to unveil his grace. Brothers and sisters, see, this is radical. God has a victorious plan and future for people who are currently rebellious. Currently. See, those part of the remnant during the time of Isaiah, they don't even know who they are yet. And yet some of these rebellious people in the future are going to repent. They're going to turn to God. See, the purpose of Isaiah is to declare the good news that God will glorify himself through the renewed and increased glory of his people, which will attract the nations. They will attract the world, not by looking like it. And this is where it gets crazy. It's by not looking like it. That the nations are going to be blessed that people are going to be intrigued, not because the people of God are looking like the world, that they become relevant and cool and hip. And you've got lots of people even in our country today that are kind of freaking out because um, Christians seemingly have lost their place inside of American culture. But I want you to know, our history of Christianity is this whole thing of having favor by our nation and by our government is not the norm. It's not the norm. The believers, the history of our faith has always been at its best and most faithful when we are not approved, when we are not relevant, when we are not all in the workings of government and acting like them. Do we forget about three Hebrew children? They refused to be like the world and they were high ups in politics. We are going to be, have influence in the world, not by looking like it, 
but by not looking like it. And what does not looking like it look like? It looks like God. It looks like God. The prophet Isaiah tells us, Behold your God. Behold your God. Lay a hold upon grasp. Lay hold tightly to the person and work of God, our Father. He implores them to return their focus to God. See, they had drifted from him. They had drifted from his character. They had drifted from his nature. They had began to be satanic, to question his word, to, and therefore to question what? Who he is. He pursues them. Yet what do they do? They reject him for other things. See, God in his grace and mercy encourages them through the prophet to turn to him, to seek him, to behold him. God's reward, what does the passage says? That God's reward is with him. He will shepherd them. He will gather the lambs. He will carry them. He will lead them. He will be their God and they will be his people. See, our aim over the next 12 weeks, our prayer over the next 12 weeks is that for everyone involved, our membership and those who are long-term attenders or visitors, if you're contemplating making Mission Church your church home, is our prayer for you as the elders is this, is that your affections, our affections for God would be so deeply stirred and vibrant in a passionate way. Maybe for some of you, they're being stirred for the first time ever. See, our desire in studying God is not simply to get more information and to win Bible dictionary games or quick call games and trivia questions. Our desire in studying God is we get the ultimate good. And what is that? God. However, this morning I think it is fitting for me to express to you some dangers. Some dangers of not seeking and savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel. Three of them. See, as we know, history has a tendency to repeating itself. Most of the Old Testament is an illustration of God's people being near to him. Then God's people drifting from him. Then God using whatever means necessary to bring God's people back. And guess what they do? Then they drift again. He brings them back. This is the constant circular motion of this kind of accordion, I guess, if you will. Being near to God, like Grover Sesame Street. Near. Farther. Okay? This is the picture that we see throughout the Old Testament is people being close to God and his character and nature and him being enough. And then by inches, centimeters, they begin to drift and drift. In the church I grew up in, this was called a backsliding. See, brothers and sisters, backsliding doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly. The drift happens slowly. See, we see this even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Why? A lot of people have titled the, the book of Corinth, The Church Gone Wild. 
Because what's happened is, is within the church, the philosophies of the world, the innovations of the world, the literal thinking and beliefs and practices have invaded the church. See, the church is becoming hip. The church is becoming cool. The church is becoming palatable. So what does Paul, like Isaiah, he tells them, compels them to turn back to God. This leads to what I believe to be the first danger. The first danger is the danger of arrogance. The first danger of not seeking and savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel is the danger of arrogance. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who is at the center of your life? Really? Who is at the center of your life? Who is at the center of your beliefs? Do you have a theology or a manology? Do we see this image of this these pictures of, uh, of just at the, really, I mean, asking yourself that tough question this morning, just don't give me the Sunday school answer, but truly, because again, your true beliefs, my true beliefs, are not going to be reflective merely on a Sunday morning, but we're talking about a life, what you truly believe, your actions will follow, and I don't care what questionnaire you fill out and say yes to. I mean, if I could really follow you around, like a ninja without you knowing it this week? Would it reflect that God is at the center of your life? If you could follow me around, would you see that God is truly at the center of your life? See, in many of my conversations with people, um, and I, I fight this even within my own self, is at the center of what they believe about God, about what they believe about Jesus, about what they believe about the Holy Spirit, isn't God himself. I've even had conversations, well, my God would never do that. My God would never be like that. And you try to have some sort of biblical conversation with them, and they refuse to believe it. And the most common thing that I've often heard is, well, I wasn't brought up that way. I wasn't raised that way. But we need to be humble enough to say, maybe we were raised wrong. Maybe this is just the byproduct of unbiblical belief by our grandparents and parents and pastors and Sunday school teachers. And so the, the drifting is passed on from person to person. This isn't a new phenomenon. We must ask ourselves, what is the aim, the motive, the intentions of our community of faith as we study God? Is it for more of God or is it for more of us? I think there's two ways that this arrogance kind of raises up. The first way is the most easy to see. Arrogance in the form of rebellion. See, some of you right now, you're past the study of God, which is really frightening. Your mentality is, is I've already got this, or we have already got this. We, we don't really need to seek and save your God as the ultimate good of the gospel, but, but we're kind of beyond this. This is the arrogance of rebellion. I don't need that. But there's also a second form of arrogance in this study. 
It's arrogance in the form of knowledge for knowledge's sake. It is simply to get more info or to learn new, you know, kind of the the intricate things about Greek and Hebrew. I mean, how many times have you walked away and you're like, I know a new Greek word, or I know this new insight to this passage, or you'll use it on Monday as you're sitting in the cubicle next to somebody and they spout out some uncontextual thing, like where two or more gather together, the Lord will be there also. And they'll use that and claim that to be church. Did you know that that passage is all about church discipline? It has nothing to do about the worship gathering. So you'll learn something like that truth on Sunday morning. And you'll hear somebody using it in a bad way on Monday. And you're like, I got him. All right? I know this nugget. I know this insight. See, pursuing this knowledge simply for information, insight, and and to learn things that you have never heard is missing the point as well. I've much, much, I've learned a lot about the study of God. I, had, I have degrees in theology. However, this is not always translating to intimacy with God. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge always goes bad for us. We must pursue it nonetheless. But if the pursuit does not lead to passion for God and compassion for others, then we have missed the character and nature of God. We are going to miss the point. See, some of you are telling each other by your lives that you don't need a daily quiet time. Now you'll say, do you need a daily quiet time? Yes. But your belief being shown by your action is, is that you don't need to spend time with God. The flip side of it is some of us are spending lots of time with God, reading and reading theology books and reading the Bible and all this sort of stuff, and yet the intimacy with God isn't growing. Case in point, a few months ago, in lieu of knowing that this sermon series was coming, we got together as the elders of the church. And we asked you to join us weekly in what's called a missional community. Now, let me show you how this arrogance plays out. Some of you haven't done it. That's the first arrogance. We don't need it. That's what you're saying. We know this by the, oftentimes, the blank stares that come at our missional communities when we ask questions. We ask as your pastors, not to burn down people's houses or teepee their trees, but to spend time with God ramping up toward this series. And yet, what's the excuse? We don't have time. We're busy. Did you know that that's arrogance? It's arrogance in shoving it and saying, we don't need that. Now, Before we throw stones at those of you who haven't participated with us, let's throw stones at those of us who have. Because the thing is, is I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I filled out a lot of blanks just because I don't want to grow in my relationship with God necessarily, but I know that I'm the pastor, and I'm afraid that some of you may look over my shoulder and see empty blanks. 
Both are arrogance. Both have made it about us. Both are missing the point. Both lead to death. This is also illustrated in the, in the story of the prodigal sons. There's a prodigal son that is with his daddy, right? But he, he's the young buck. He knows everything. He doesn't need his daddy anymore. So he goes off. He doesn't understand his daddy. He doesn't understand his character. He doesn't understand his nature to bless him. And yet there's also a prodigal son who, guess what? Is still at the house. And is even when the, the, the other son comes back home, remember the daddy's wanting to throw a party? And, and the older brother is like, no, he can't do that. You didn't throw me a party. I never left. I've been doing everything that you've wanted me to do. And what does the daddy say? You've, you've always been my boy. And everything I've had has always been yours. See, both of those prodigal sons missed who their daddy was. My fear in doing this is the danger of arrogance, the anger of a rebellion. I don't need to spend time with the Lord. I don't need to pray. I'm too busy. And we all know, if you have a Facebook account, you are not too busy. All right? If you have cable television, Netflix, we're not too busy. But on the flip side, simply going through the motions so that people and others will be impressed by us or so that we can gain sort of nuggets is also missing God. And you need to repent. We need to repent of that mentality. Paul will talk about this. See, if, if we're not careful over the next few months, we're going to become arrogant. We'll be tempted to think that we're better than other Christians because of their lack of pursuit of these things. Paul reminds First Corinthians, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, the idea here is to be known. To be known. I can tell you lots this morning about the, the moving patterns of deer. I can tell you lots of useful, useless information. For, for, I think it's useful. Useless information in regards to fishing. Those are things that I am immersed in. I can get knowledge about though, but I do not have a relationship with a deer. And I do not have a relationship with fish. But I know a lot about them. The, the goal here is to have relationship, to be immersed with, to be preoccupied, to be consumed with the person and work of God. As it's been said many times, the scripture is not a textbook. The scripture is God revealing himself to us. You and I will not have spiritual health without the study of scripture. But if the study of scripture is done with the wrong intent, then this is equally as unhealthy. This is why there needs to be some course correction in our hearts this morning. This leads us to the second danger. 
The second danger of not seeking and savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel is this. The danger of worshiping gifts over worshiping God. The danger of worshiping gifts over worshiping God. I once heard uh, Pastor John Piper say this, and he says that this is the most critical question for every generation to ask. Listen to this. Focus. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all your friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you would ever like and all the leisure activities you have ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? See, many of us paint a picture, I don't know if it's because we grew up watching Looney Tunes, of heaven being a bunch of people half naked wearing sheets playing harps on clouds. When we think about heaven, we think about it being this kind of eternal vacation where we eat, drink, and sing lots of, Lord, I lift your name on high or something for all of eternity. What a riveting question. See, our temptation is this this morning. Our temptation is to fall in love with salvation and not be in love with Jesus. That's a serious danger. There are lots of people who are, man, I, I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm so glad that I've been redeemed. I'm, I'm so glad they're falling in love with this idea of salvation. Do you want to go to hell? Hell no, I don't want to go to hell. But heaven sounds a lot better, right? That was said to me at a church camp one time. In my Snickers came to realize there was a lot of seriousness in that. Our temptation is to fall in love with salvation. Salvation is a gift and not in love with Jesus. See, heaven is only heaven if God is there. The goal of God's mission in sending Jesus through the work of Jesus was to get us back to God, the fruits of God, the, the fruits of salvation, like good things like justification and redemption and eternal life without pain. These are all precious secondary gifts. They are valuable, but they do not hold the ultimate worth God does. We must be careful in our worship to fight the drift from worshiping God's love or his grace or his mercy or his patience. All of these should stir our affections, but toward God, not the gift. Maybe you're saying this morning, Pastor Eric, aren't you being a little nitpicky? Aren't these just semantics? My answer to you would be that this is a surrounding or a resounding no. These are not just semantics. See, when we drift, as I believe that a lot of what is called American Christianity has toward this mentality, then we drift continues away from God being the ultimate good of the gospel, and we eventually wake up like those whom Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven amongst against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for they can be known about God is plain to them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The ultimate thing of our worth should be God. God gives us these gifts and in turn by our nature, our desire then is to not worship the God, the creator, but is to worship what he has given us. We're all tempted to love the gift over the giver. Isn't this the struggle of every Christmas? However, I, I can prove that this is a ridiculous mentality. A few years ago, um, I was traveling in New York City. It was called a mission trip. really wasn't, but it was a good trip. So we're walking through Chinatown, and in Chinatown in New York City, there's all of these little boutiques, and I walk past this window, and inside this window, on this mannequin, is this beautiful green dress. And I immediately go, Laura would look amazing in that dress. So I literally go in there, and dudes, I got lucky. I was trying to think, I mean, I sat there for 30 minutes, size. I mean, I was doing like any, many, money, mo. I mean, I didn't want to call her. I didn't want her to have any idea of what I was doing. I wanted it to be a complete surprise. So I, I go in, and luckily, man, I, I bought this dress. I took it home, and I gave it to Laura. To this day, it's one of my favorite things that Laura ever wears. I think that she, black is my favorite color, but I think my wife looks good in this Kelly greenish, bright greenish color. And so I bring it to Laura, and I give it to her. It was unmerited by her. She didn't ask for it. She didn't earn it. It was simply a gift from me as her husband to my wife. And luckily, I was a few thousand miles from home, and it fit. Now, in turn, Laura opens this up, and she loves the dress. She still has the dress and still occasionally wears it. And every time she does, I think back to that trip and me being able to give that to her and how beautiful she still looks in it. But how ridiculous, if I was to tell you that story, and I'd be like, afterward, she got a divorce from me, and she married the dress. Or that she began to fall more in love with the dress than she did me as her husband. See, that, that's ridiculous. And yet that's how many of us are living in regards to our relationship with God. We're in love with his provision Insomuch that when he doesn't seemingly provide, we lose it. All right? We're in love that he keeps us safe, but when he doesn't, then we lose it. It's crazy for us to begin thinking along these lines that we begin to love the gift over the giver, that we love creation over the creator. Do you know what another name for wanting Jesus, for what he can give you, is called? The prosperity gospel. And you're like, no, Pastor Eric, I thought the prosperity gospel was this thing where you say, money, come into me. And everybody brings up their money to the altar and the, the preacher dances all over it. And it multiplies for them 
<laughs> right, for the preacher, and man, they're just calling, if you'll sow, you know, midnight watching the television, if you'll send in some seed money, then what God's going to do to you is he's going to multiply that money. That's the prosperity gospel. No, this as well is the prosperity gospel. It may not be money that you're in love with that God can provide, but it is something else, and it is wrong. It's sinful. It is missing it. That's what it is. Brothers and sisters, we do not need God to be moral. We do not need God to have a good marriage. You do not need God to be a good husband. You do not need God to be a good wife. You do not need God to be a good parent, a good employee, a good citizen. Not going to hell is good news. Being chosen by God is good news. Being counted as perfect because of the person and work of Jesus, these are all good news, but it is not the ultimate good of the gospel. God is. And that's why, we're that's why we fall in temptation of being in love with salvation and not in love with Jesus. See, in the end, you need God to get God. When worldliness slowly creeps into the, our lives, into the church, this is what happens. Theology, sound doctrine, evangelism, mission, teachings, prayer, they're all replaced. The focus is no longer on the God and his glory, but more on the felt needs of man. That's why we can now go to a majority of our churches and you hear little snippets about God, but you can walk away with a notebook filled on how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better employee, all while missing God. This leads to the other danger. Another danger is of God not being at the, at the center of our affections is this is the danger of God not being the main attraction in our lives and in our gatherings. See, like the people during the time of Isaiah, like the early church, like the Reformation, and like today, we are easily attracted by other things other than God. Like, like a bass in a lake surrounded by fresh food, we are attracted by something shiny and colorful and, and plastic, and upon being consumed, snags us and, and reels us toward death. We've seen this in the Old Testament. We have seen this occurrence in the New Testament. We have seen this during the time of the Reformation. We have seen this in the 1800s. We have seen this in the 20th century. And, and we see this in the 21st century. One of my heroes of faith is a man named Charles Spurgeon. We speak a lot about him. I quote a lot about him. I drink a mug with his picture on the front of it. Uh, this guy has, has blessed me through the Lord. In the later years of Charles Spurgeon's ministry, modern thought um, began to be critical of the church. So this is in the 1800s. Church and the gospel seemed to be ancient thoughts. Sound familiar? And not relevant. And not changing with the ever-evolving culture. Humanity had moved beyond this primitive way of thinking. Sunday gathering attendance began to decline. Responding negatively, many within the church with good intentions begin focusing more on methodology instead of God's character. 
The prayer meeting was removed. The study of scripture was lessened. Sermons were kept short. Entertainment became the norm. It has been said that churches began to look more like a theater than the Bible. And the Bible took a back seat to theatrics and entertainment. This really concerned Charles Spurgeon, who began to write articles called the downgrade articles to warn pastors of this methodology and encourage them to remain faithful to God and his bride. Pastors wrestling with their own ego and pride were willing to do whatever it took to keep people in their seats. See, when you're a pastor of a small church or your attendance begins to decrease, then as a pastor you feel or you believe that you're being seen as a failure. So they began to entertain more and more. So they would feel better about themselves and they could peer into the eyes of larger numbers of people. See, if the people, if the number of people in attendance grew, then the method must be okay. If it works, if it gets results, if people walk the aisle, if they sign a covenant card or, or make a decision by checking a box to follow after Jesus, then it can't be wrong in the end. Do whatever it takes to get people to come to the gathering. Success was determined by the number of people sitting in the seats. You would think that I'd be reading something from this last week. It's important to state at this moment, those during this time of Spurgeon who were doing all these things, guess what? They were bringing modern innovations into the church, originally had no theological agenda. They were not trying to remove sound doctrine from the church. They simply fell into the trap of methodology over and above theology. In the words of John MacArthur, he says that theology takes the back seat to methodology. They were not trying to destroy the heart of the biblical faith. They were simply trying to make Christianity more appealing, more attractive, so that non-believers would come. They thought if the church reflected the art, music, style of the modern world, then more people would want to attend the Sunday morning gathering. Maybe if the gathering was not so stiff, not so rigid, maybe the delivery of the message was twisted a little bit, more people would come. Brothers and sisters, history reveals that the fruit of being driven by methodology instead of a high view of God, guess what the outcome was? Many false converts. Cultural Christianity. Nominal Christianity, which means to be Christian by name only. And eventually, the exact opposite happened. They came for a little while, and then they left. They became blind to it. Eventually, the pastors, members, and seminaries became more and more liberal in their thinking and practice. I would encourage you to take a moment to study this week the church in England at this current state. There are many buildings that are empty in England right now. They're for sale or they're being torn down. Was this the goal of these people? No, but it was the result. See, what we win people with in the church is what we keep them with. We live in a culture where we must constantly be pushing for new innovation, new technology, new experiences. From the the beginning, God's desire has been for the church to be incarnational, not attractional. Let me put it another way. 
The church has been, now, currently, is about attraction. Come to us. Hey, we're meeting on Sunday morning. Come to us. It's going to be an experience. We use all of these adjectives. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before. And man, we'll bring in all sorts of stuffs in hope of competing with the world on a Sunday morning to get people at our Sunday gatherings. And yet the Bible is not a group of people saying, come to us. The Bible The perspective of Jesus is go to them. Why? Why is God constantly wanting us to go to them, not them come to us? Is because this is reflective of his character. God is a God that's not of great distance. God is a God that comes. See, eventually we cannot keep up with growing demand to be more thrilling to be more entertaining so that people will often migrate to church gatherings or simply stay at home. God is the goal. God is the gospel. And on many occasions where we begin to add other things, even with good intentions, the tendency is to distract from God. There's this old proverb that says this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. When something becomes the norm, then we become blinded by its dangers, especially when it has become such a norm of the majority. This is what everybody does now, especially in the American church. Trying to reverse this drift, standing against the current of belief and practice is a difficult task, yet we must, we must behold our God. Have you ever asked the question, why do you belong to a certain church? Why do you attend a certain worship gathering? And then the answers have nothing to do with God. They have to do with the style of music. They have to do with the favorite preacher. They have to do with the program for their kids. A.W. Tozer once said again, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. It's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. I've got to confess to you this morning, sin in my heart. As one of your pastors, I feel this tension all the time. The tension to be liked. The tension to be funny. The tension to shorten my sermons, like right now, as most of you are falling asleep or dazing or worrying about the rain. That wasn't in my notes. Just added that. <laughs> it felt right. It was context. It's contextualization. Write that down. I feel this tension all the time. To create innovative ideas to create programs for our preaching, our music, our, our, our building to all be better so that it will attract more people to come to our gathering. See, by nature, from the time I was a small kid, I'm an artist. Artists create things for people to have and to look at 
and to admire. I have grown up my entire life, entire life, entertaining people. I was a Kentucky State champion for several years in a row in regards to acting for our state. I've been on stage my entire life. From the time I was a small child, my parents would put me out in front of them and, and they would be like, entertain. I would come up with a new impression. I would walk into the bank and my mom would put me on the spot and say, hey, Eric, bub, is what she called. Hey, hey, bub, do that John Wayne. Do that Steve Urkel. And I'd be like, can I do that? I mean, I had it down. On, I mean, it's like a, a performing monkey. Entertain us. I have to confess, I had lots of conversations with Justin and Todd and asking them humbly, man, should we be doing this? Should, should we be doing that? Because when I compare what's happening at Mission Church to what's happening in a lot of congregations who are very attractional, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't speak to them, but I can speak to this. As I ask all the time, Man, should we be doing this? I've wrestled even over the last few weeks. I became deeply troubled when I learned of a congregation who was sending out all sorts of flyers in our city about an upcoming Sunday morning gathering. And on it, it, it talked about how they were going to give $1,000 worth of free gifts away. And listen to these gifts, such as paying bills. I knew Brian, if he had seen this, was rolling over. Gift cards for kids. And I'm asking, should we do that? I follow a communications blog for a church. And I was wrestling with this this last week. I, even, I think I called Justin, was asking him about it. And on this communication blog, the person, you can submit questions, and all these communicators and graphic designers ask questions, and you can help each other out. And this is what it said, designer's block. Need help in marketing an adult dress up like your favorite celebrity Sunday. What do we even call that thing? So on a Sunday morning gathering at this, local, at this church, not a local church, they're having come to church adults dressed up like your favorite celebrity. And please hear me, my first inclination was not to bash this but was to ask the question, should I show up like Trump on Sunday? <laughs> or A-Rod? Or Michael Jordan? It's funny now. You can laugh. I mean... I mean, I don't, I don't understand how you could you show up like Kim Kardashian on a Sunday morning. What do you even call that thing? Adult dress up like your favorite celebrity Sunday. I'm not here to throw stones at them. I want you to know that the tension is real. Because again, the majority of people who responded, no one said on this Christian blog, why are you doing that? They all helped give names. 
This is the norm. Do you ever question? I know we're going over time, but y'all have to get over it today. We're going old school, like biblical. Do you ever find yourself questioning if you should invite someone to our gathering? Because all the things that we don't have compared to others. Maybe we're a little bit embarrassed. Maybe if you do bring someone, you feel like the over need to explain. Like, we meet in a school, like cafeteria. I promise it's not a cult. We only bring out the snakes the first Sunday of every month. This is the second Sunday, you're good. Yeah, our pastor, he preaches and pretends to play music. Just go along with it. His heart's good. It's in the right place. We just don't have anybody else to do it. So show him lots of grace. You show up, they've got teenagers, and you're like, probably won't want to come here. We don't have a youth group. We don't own our building. Our, our children's ministry isn't Disney World. We don't have a senior citizen's breakfast that meets every week, and I wish we did because I love breakfast. Did I see? And, oh, senior citizens, they're okay. They're cool. Mm-hmm. Breakfast, in laws, in laws cooking breakfast. Kathy's got y'all beat. Am I the only one? I mean, have you really thought? And again, it's nothing against our brothers and sisters two miles down the road. But if I'm looking for a church, I don't have one. This is probably not what I'm looking for when I can just drive down the road and have an amazing experience. And it's not that even in the midst of that, that they're not preaching the gospel. I don't know. That's what I, I'm not... They may be speaking the gospel and speaking about God in spite of all that stuff, okay? I'm just saying that there's a tension within me. It's for the main attraction not to be God. But is it for to be me? Or what I want? Do you know what we do have, church? Do you know what we do have, Mission Church? We have God. We have to ask the question, is God enough? Is the gospel enough? See, if we're waiting on the church to have a building, a certain style of worship music, a certain number of people, and then we will really be a church, or we will really worship God, then I want you to know that we're missing the point this morning. If the Sunday morning experience is for us to feel good about ourselves and Learn some application to help us through the week. Again, I'd say that we're missing the point. As awesome as evangelism is, as awesome as it is like we're about to do is take communion together, as awesome as it is to witness a baptism take place or a baby dedication or to even marry a new couple, 
None of that's the point. God is. We eat it from the table to remember God. To commune with God. We evangelize because we want people to know God. We dedicate babies because we want babies to know God. We marry couples so that they will illustrate in their marriage God. So we ask, can this change? Can course be corrected? Yes, it can. If we behold God, what would it look like for Mission Church's greatest attraction would be God? What would it look for you and I to seek and save your God above everything else? What would it look like for a community of faith to stop being fans and start being fanatics of God? To be obsessed daily with God, to be preoccupied with God, to not be puffed up in our knowledge but be de- or to be driven by our preferences, but to really believe in God. Last quote, Spurgeon. This is from Behold Your God. He quotes it. Give us a church that loves Jesus Christ much. You have mighty prayer meetings. You have holy membership. You have liberal giving to the cause of Christ. You have hearty praising of His name. You will have careful walking before the world. You will have earnest endeavors for the conversion of sinners. Missions at home and abroad will be set afoot when love is fervent. The heart is right. Everything is likely to be right. But when the heart goes wrong, oh, what a fatal thing it is. Can we have a heart check this morning? See, I believe that we can be that church. We've said from the beginning is our desire has been to be faithful no matter our size. That we would fight for faithfulness whether big, small, numerically, building, no building. is faithfulness not merely on a Sunday morning but in our lives. God must be the goal. He must be the pursuit of our heart. Knowing Him is not a part of life. It is life. The fruits of knowing Him are all secondary of knowing Him to knowing Him. Please don't think in the end of this 12 weeks that in some way that we have arrived. But may this be a community of faith that sees it as a launch pad to a lifelong eternal pursuit of God. Because God is the Gospel. Will you stand with me?